Good evening and welcome to Tisky Sour, which is back in the Navarro Media Studio. It feels like complete luxury compared to the nine months I've spent trapped in my bedroom. Hopefully the transition is going to be very smooth, although do forgive us for any glitches. I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing, Ash? Now, released me from my home imprisonment, so what's going on? Don't you want me around? Apparently we've got to do this as a step-by-step process. Obviously there is nothing more that, that I would love than to have you sitting opposite me at the Tisky Sour table. But I, uh, A likely tale. We'll, we'll get there in the coming days and weeks, <laughs> I am sure. Um, we do have a great show lined up for you tonight. We're going to be talking about Boris Johnson's plan to break a manifesto pledge um, in order to fund social care. And we are talking about Marcus Rashford coming out against the cut to universal credit and Lisa Nandy going on a Murdoch-owned radio station to say she would personally campaign against Jeremy Corbyn in Islington North. First story. In his first speech as Prime Minister in July 2019, Boris Johnson made the following promise to the British public. My job is to protect you or your parents or grandparents from the fear of having to sell your home to pay for the costs of care. And so I am announcing now on the steps of Downing Street that we will fix the crisis in social care once and for all with a clear plan we have prepared to give every older person the dignity and security they deserve. Boris Johnson there said his government had a clear plan to fix social care. Yet more than two years on, there is no plan and there is certainly no agreement on what it should look like. This was from Laura Koonsberg last night. She tweeted, Sounds like haggling still going on over social care. Delay in reaching agreements created plenty of space for a backlash before the details have even emerged. As Laura Koonsberg makes clear in that tweet, the issue causing controversy is how any new plan for social care will be funded. And Boris Johnson's government is in a particularly tight spot because of another promise made by the Prime Minister in 2019. This was a pledge in the Conservative Manifesto to not raise the rate of income tax, VAT or national insurance. Those pledges were personally signed by the Prime Minister. According to numerous briefings, that promise will be broken when Boris Johnson announces that national insurance will be increased by at least 1% so as to pay for a cap to the cost of social care. To discuss the row over tax rises and the care crisis, I'm joined by James Meadway. Welcome back to the show, James. My first question for you is not so much on the tax rises, but on the care crisis itself. Everyone seems to agree there is a social care crisis. I want you to explain what that is. What is the problem that we're trying to fix? The, the fundamental problem here is, is actually the fundamental problem really remains one of funding and financing. We have a much older population which has uh, many more care needs than perhaps a a relatively younger population would have had in the past. So there's a lot of pressure appearing in the system, uh, just as a a kind of demographic factor the country we now live in. There is then also a series of separate issues that have come through with uh, the relationship between the NHS and people getting treatment in the NHS and being passed on to the care system. And then the final bit, of course, is is the, the terrible uh, situation pushed onto the care system during the coronavirus crisis. And what you've got to, during the pandemic over the last 18 months or so, and what you've got to say with all of this is that 
to a very large extent, if there is a problem in the social care system now, this lands very squarely on the party that's been in power for the last 10 years. And if you can wind your, your memory back to 2010, there was a cross-party almost agreement between Labour and Tories on how to secure funding for social care into the future. The, the reason this was presented as a sort of cross-party issue is that you want to be able to say, OK, both the Labour and the Conservative parties have agreed that because this is a very long-term issue, like we have an ageing population, this is going to happen into the future, we have to find some way to pay for social care. We will therefore come up with something that both parties agree on as the funding system, and if they both agree, we know it be secure regardless of what happens in, in various elections and things. It was Andy Burnham, now Metro Mayor of Manchester at the time, Secretary of State for Health, who presented his plan for what is basically an estate tax, a tax when people die that will cover the costs of any care they might have needed. The Tories were inching towards signing up to this and then last minute with the election approaching just blew the whole thing open and said we're not going to touch this. It's a death tax and that was the slogan they used in the election. Help them just creep into victory there. They then launched the Deal Not Commission in 2011, that's 10 years ago now. That recommended basically the funding system that it looks like the Tories are trying to put in place now with the idea of a, a cap on the total payments of care that you might be expected to make. So if you have particularly complex care needs late in life, if you've got Alzheimer's, for example, which can be very expensive, they'll cap on how much you, you would ever have to pay for that, which is, of course, fair. You know, There's no way to control who ends up in that situation, who doesn't. It's kind of fair to do this. That was 10 years ago, and then they haven't actually advanced this system ever since then. So it's entirely of the government's making. This lands on them. And then the, the sort of, it's not quite the last minute, but when they really, really can't avoid this any longer, when there's at least £4 billion worth of shortfall that's built up inside the system, when there's one and a half million people not getting the care they need, when they really can't avoid this any longer, they come up with about the worst possible way of trying to fund this, which is basically saying lots and lots of people in work, 26 million people paying national insurance contributions have to pay more, so that in effect... A smaller number of actually potentially really quite well-off elderly people can be uh, can have the value of their assets protected, which is you know, redistribution in completely the wrong direction. You're, you're taking very substantially from younger working people uh, and transferring it to people with, with large amounts of assets. It's not a fair way to do this. Almost anything else that's been proposed, and there are several different ways you could try and fund this, is a fairer and better system. Let's talk about some of those other ways, and I suppose in particular, just to hammer home, what is the significance of, of national insurance? How is it different from income tax? I mean, it's obvious how it's different from VAT, but I suppose, yeah, let's talk about how it's different from income tax. There's a myth around it, and, and this, this dates back to, to when national insurance was introduced. The current system really stems from the Beveridge Report in 1944, and it was intended to be what sometimes people think it is, which is a kind of insurance pot. You pay into it, you make contributions, and then because you put into this pot when you need it, like you're unemployed or you retire, potentially you have social care needs, you take out of the pot, you know, often at the end of your life. It's never worked like that. The, the Treasury has really only ever treated it as just another income tax. It's just a bit more on the income tax that you pay. The really perverse thing about it, actually, there's two things that are really peculiar that start to just make it really unfair, especially for social care funding. First, there's a thing called the upper earnings limit, where the basic rate of national insurance is about 12.5%. Uh, and then once you earn more than about 50000 a year, that drops to 2%. So it's exactly the opposite of income tax. Income tax increases as you earn more. National insurance, you pay less proportionately as you earn more. So it's kind of built in on fairness. Uh, the second bit is that if you are over 
the retirement age, the state pension age is 66, you don't pay this in your earnings. Uh, and of course, final bit is that it's not taxed on earnings from things like bank accounts and, and rental income and this sort of thing. So, so it appears literally on you're in work, you have to pay this. But if you are a landlord and you're a retired landlord in particular, you are not going to face any costs on this. So it's, it's really not a very good way at all of trying to fund social care costs. The, the, the mechanism here is shuffling money in exactly the wrong direction. Let's look now at some of the alternatives being proposed. Andy Burnham this morning supported the principle of a wealth tax. In my view, we should not be taxing work. We should be taxing wealth uh, to pay for the reform of, of social care because, you know, it's that generation. If I can say it, put it this way, Kate, it's my mum and dad's generation who are, who are you know, coming to the point now where maybe they might need the care system at some point. But they didn't pay through their taxes, through their working life for social care because social care wasn't in in the post-war settlements, if you like. So you, you can't ask younger workers today, you know, we would call them generation rent, wouldn't we? People who've got big uh, student debt. You can't ask that generation to pay for the care of a generation who've, who've not contributed through the tax system. That That isn't right. I would say ask all older people through the assets they've got, the property assets, to make a contribution. The beneficiary should make a contribution, but then turn to other wealth taxes like capital gains tax to make up the difference. That, I think, is the basis for a fair funding solution. Andy Burnham, of course, doesn't speak for the Labour Party. He's a directly elected mayor. And once again, the official position of the Labour front bench is to not have a position, especially when it comes to alternatives. This was Liz Kendall, Shadow Minister for Social Care, speaking to Kay Burley. The government has started with a, with a, as it seems, we've yet to see the details, a tax rise that would really penalise younger and low-income workers. In fact, some of the very care workers who we already know are struggling. So I think they need to think again about this. OK, Shadow Minister, how would you pay for it then? But we'll set out our clear proposals before uh, the next election in our manifesto. Oh, Minister, you, Shadow Minister, you've had two years to come up with a plan. We know that Boris Johnson, you know, we're criticising him for not having a plan. You're in opposition. You have had plenty of time to tell us what your plan is. Well, I want to see any any increases in spending properly costed and funded. And in a way, I would say here, Kate, that it's, it's not just fair across the incomes, but fair across the generations. We'll need to Why see what we've seen it till now, Shadow Minister. Why have we not seen it till now? You know, you you would have costed it ahead of the last election in your manifesto, presumably. You've had two years since to criticise the Prime Minister for not coming up with one. Where's yours? Well, uh, look, we need to see what the economic conditions are at the time. And just as at the last election, we put forward uh, costed plans. That's what we will do next time round, because I think it's, you know, people want to know that if you make a commitment, you're going to stick with it. So Labour, again, saying they're going to wait potentially three years before they come up with the alternative they would be in favour of when it comes to paying for social care. A familiar line there from the Labour front bench. James. What I want to know from you is what alternative you would back and also whether you think it's time for Labour to take a concrete position on how they would pay for social care. 
Of course it is. Um, on the last part, this is it's not it's something close to an open goal that the Conservatives have opened up. They, they, as you said, they went into the election with a promise, and it's still up on their website, uh, that Boris Johnson signed saying, we will not increase national insurance, uh, and they're just going to break this. We've just lost James Meadway. Hopefully we'll be able to get him back in a moment. Um, while we're waiting for that, I will show you some data on public opinion about this. James saying it's an open goal. I think it's clear the logic behind that statement. At the same time, the public seem to be fairly positive about rises to national insurance and more so than rises about income tax. We might be able to get up um, this data from YouGov and The Times. They show that 64% of the public say yes to a national insurance rise to pay for social care. Only 23% are opposed to that national insurance rise. And support is also there for an increase to income tax, but that support is much lower, or significantly lower, than support for a rise to national insurance. I want to know what Ash thinks about this particular topic, if we still have Ash Sarkar on the line. What do you make of the politics of all of this? Okay, so in terms of the politics of all of this, obviously Boris Johnson is in a sticky position because he has made two contradictory promises. One is no increases in taxation and the other is sort out the social care system. You can't have both those things at once. Now, in order to sort of square that circle, there's also another ideological pressure, which is how do you increase taxes without it being seen as an attack on uh, Tory donors, an attack on wealth, an attack on the interests of capital. So I think that's why we've ended up with this uh, appeal to uh, national insurance, because one, it's got very good branding. It's called national insurance. As James said, it enjoys this kind of historic and imaginative connection with the NHS. So it's not seen in quite the same way as, say, income tax or a different form of flat tax like VAT. Um, the second thing is that people can only really respond to the choices which are put in front of them. So when the messaging going out is, okay, you want a social care system, like it or lump it, you're going to have to swallow this increase in national insurance. Well, the fact is, is that many people in this country, not just the elderly, but working age people who have care needs, who've got disabilities, and also working age people who are interacting with the care system in order to secure care for one of their loved ones. They're like, hang on, we have dealt with this burden of dealing with a really confusing and Kafka-esque bureaucracy in order to get uh, care for one of our loved ones or for myself, and also dealing with the financial pressures as well. So when you present a choice to people, which is, do you want this thing or nah? Well, they've been suffering for its lack for a really long time. And that's where I think it's so important that Labour actually come up with a different idea, a different vision, a different narrative. Now, it's actually one which is really quite simple. Um, In James's article, which he wrote for The Guardian, one of the things that he pointed out is there are lots of really popular wealth taxes that you could implement, which do broadly enjoy public support. So one would be a 1% tax on millionaires, which would, I think, garner over £240 billion over five years. You've also got an old Tory policy, uh, an old Nigel Lawson policy of equalizing capital gains tax with income tax. That's also something which would bring in an awful lot of money for the Treasury. The other thing you could do is get rid of the upper uh, income 
limit on national insurance contributions that would also bring in an awful lot of money. Um, these are all things which, when you put it to the public, enjoy broad support. But what you have to do is, I think, connect it to an overhaul of the social care system, not just plugging the funding gaps, but actually making it uh, simple and good and easy to interact with. You've got, I think, around 1.4 million people going without the care that they need in this country. One of the reasons is because it is such a nightmare of a system to interact with. Um, and, and, and just simplifying the whole thing. At the moment, interacting with the care system, it's not like interacting with the NHS. So if you're somebody who has got, um, you know, regularized migration status, um, it, interacting with the NHS, even though it's been, you know, privatized and bits of it have been sort of parceled off and there have been cuts, it's still relatively straightforward. I know what the care pathway is if me or a loved one need care because we've got, um, you know, a medical condition, for instance, like heart issues. But if I or my loved one has dementia, the care pathway, the treatment pathway is not clear. So you've got this really quite I think traumatizing system, um, which I think um, I think what Ellie Mayo Hagan said is like interacting with the worst of the American healthcare system, just for this particular set of care needs. So I think this conversation is really important, as James said, to talk about funding, but also we need to talk about what kind of care is going to be offered. Um, so I think that yeah, different story. Talk about wealth taxes and also talk about just making the system not a complete nightmare. To have to deal with what all the political sides are, are talking about is how you would cap costs so people can protect their inheritances and yes we might not be particularly in favor of inheritance but it does seem unfair that whether or not you can pass money onto your kids depends on you know the lottery of whether or not you get dementia so there probably should be some cap but maybe that is slightly missing the point james do you think we are bogged down in a conversation about capping care costs and not enough on sort of other elements of, of the care crisis if you're going to have a system where you make a contribution, a cap's not a bad idea because of this erratic distribution of who ends up being really seriously, you know, requiring a large amount of care, particularly later in life. You can't say right now who's going to end up with Alzheimer's, who isn't, most obviously. But Ash is absolutely right in this. The proposals to say something like, we would like a national care service, which provides, similar to the NHS, care free at the point of, of need and at use, and that's funded out of general taxation in some form. This would be a dramatic simplification of the system and, and make the whole thing rather fairer than it is now. I mean, what's been happening on the, on the slide here is a sort of quiet privatisation of care over a number of years. Uh, what? about 80% of care beds now and certainly care homes are uh, basically privately owned. And, and it's not just any old private ownership, by the way, it's, it's private equity ownership that's come into the care sector in a very big way. That's gone alongside the fact that you have care is one of the sectors of the economy that just has chronically poor conditions. We actually saw this, I think, uh, during coronavirus with the, the outbreaks of, of, of COVID in, in care homes. But these are you know, care workers are on average, paid less than the real living wage. Uh, they are subject to short-term contracts. They are not giving the training and resources they need. If you really want to start funding all this properly, you're having to look at significantly more funding going into the system. Uh, the King's Fund estimates it's sort of £14 billion pounds, uh, by you know, the next five years or so, five years' time, to actually pay people properly, expand care provision. And then potentially on top of that, you want to say, well, OK, we want this to be a national care service, which, like Ash says, is clean and simple and integrated with the healthcare. Uh, system and that requires more, more money 
at that point, you can't just say, oh, we'll put a penny on national insurance or 5p on national insurance or basically just try and absolutely impoverish people who, by the way, have seen their wages go nowhere for a decade. That's the situation for most working people in this country. You have to start saying, let's tax wealth. So I think Andy Burnham's right. Uh, I think equalising capital gains uh, tax is the amount of money you pay, for instance, if you, you know, sell assets like shares or a second home or whatever, equalise the amount of tax you pay with the amount you pay on in income. Something that, that, exactly as Ash says, uh, Nigel Lawson as Tory Chancellor back in, what, 1986 did this. Um, Equalising that is £90 billion pounds over five years. Bringing the genuine wealth tax of the kind that the LSE Warwick Commission last year suggested would be you know 1% tax on millionaires and you get £260 billion pounds over five years. There are plenty of other ideas out there that would provide the secure long-term funding basis to make social care equivalent to the NHS and better than the NHS we have now, that would solve the crisis now and get us something better. And for Labour not to be taking even the kind of baby steps to get out of there, to not start to set up an argument so that never mind what we're saying right now, they can win against the government on this, but they want to set up the argument so that when it comes to the election, we're having a serious conversation about wealth taxes, about funding public services properly. That means starting that conversation now and saying now what they would want to do, rather than saying three years' time, we'll just surprise you all with some manifesto. You have to set these arguments up now. Failing to do that, is putting them further and further away from winning the election in three years' time. James Meadway, thank you so much for coming on this evening. Always a pleasure to have you on to decode the wonkiest stories of the day. And I don't say that in a disparaging way. I mean, genuinely, you make, you make the wonky stories interesting. I, I wave my hands around a fair bit. I think that's the key to it. <laughs> Perfect. Speak to you soon. Thank you. Now we can go on to the next story. Once again, Marcus Rashford, England striker and Britain's most successful campaigner, is attacking the government about their abandonment of poor families. This time he has his sights set on a £20 cut in universal credit due to come into force in October. Rashford tweeted, Instead of removing support through social security, we should be refocusing efforts on developing a sustainable long-term roadmap out of this child hunger pandemic. Up to now, Rashford's campaigns have focused on food poverty and in particular the provision of free school meals over the holidays. Rashford also tweeted the following. 4.3 million people, including 2.5 million children, the reality of food insecurity in the UK over the last six months. Figures higher than those recorded in the first six months of the COVID-19 pandemic and a massive 27% higher than pre-COVID-19. The intervention from Marcus Rashford is likely timed to coincide with an opposition day debate, which Labour will be putting forward this Wednesday. This has happened before Marcus Rashford makes an issue popular. Labour put it forward in an opposition debate and they try and peel off Tory MPs to threaten the government with a loss in the Commons. Labour um, are speaking out against this cut. Labour's Shadow Work and Pension Secretary Jonathan Reynolds said Labour is giving Conservative MPs the chance to do the right thing, stand up to the Prime Minister and defend their constituents from this devastating cut. Once again, this government's record doesn't stand up to reality. They promised investment in the North and Midlands, but are instead pulling billions out of local economies. A letter to the government last week signed by groups including the Royal College of Paediatricians and Child Health similarly called on the government to scrap the planned cut. They said it would amount to the biggest overnight cut in social security since World War II and that it would push 500,000 people into poverty. Ash, 
Marcus Rashford has forced U-turns on this government before. Do you think he's going to manage it again? I mean, look, he may well do. And I think we've danced this dance before, which is Marcus Rashford essentially operates as an outrider for uh, the social safety net. Labour follow. The government is forced into doing something embarrassing, uh, sending out people to defend the indefensible in the morning TV round, and then there's a U-turn. I think one of the things that is going to be interesting with this one is that it's not necessarily something as immediately emotive as free school meals provision uh, during half term and summer holidays. It's something very, very tangible and immediate about that. It's food out of the mouths of poor children. With this, then you kind of have wrapped up in it how people feel about benefits claimants who we know have been stigmatized because of a, you know, well, more than two decades now, but a really concerted drive towards seeing benefits claimants as lazy, scroungers, feckless, and all the rest of it. So it will be interesting to see whether that moral clarity that Marcus Rashford possesses, and I think quite a unique place within popular culture, if that's going to be the beginning of something of a fight back and a pushback against those years of negative stereotyping. I think one of the things to bear in mind is that when it comes to talking about the social safety net, the British media is shit. It's just, it's, it's just complete trash. I'll never forget when uh, this proposed cut to the £20 uplift was first proposed. You had Laura Koonsberg going on TV saying, well, it's not really a cut, but you know, it does kind of feel like one. As if taking £20 out of the pockets of some of the most deprived families in this country is simply a matter of perception, as though it's merely subjective. Um, and the way in which I think, you know, the, the establishment media in this country talks about the social safety net simply as kind of another chess piece in a grand political game, I think is one of the reasons why politicians have been able to get away with such brutal and draconian policies for so long. And the positioning of Marcus Rashford, because of how uh, strong his independent social media following is, because of the fact that he is unconnected to the kind of horse, tra horse trading and, you know, dirty business of self-serving and venal Westminster politics, he can often cut through that kind of noise and obfuscation. Um, so I really hope that he's able to inflict another U-turn on the government. And it's something which I think Keir Starmer could learn from, which is don't get tied up in process and procedure and, oh, we'll have a look and I'll be subject to a review and rest assured that I will float an idea or a hint of a policy in six to 12 months time. Just say the thing you want to happen and fucking go for it. You talked about the dishonest media there. This is also a topic on which Tory politicians are consistently dishonest. And the main driver of this cut is understood to be Rishi Sunak, who wants to find ways to lower government spending as the pandemic nears its close, or at least moves on from its emergency phase. This is how Sunak defended the cut to universal credit back in August. 
Well, one of the things I'm proudest of over the past 12 to 18 months is that we have looked after the most vulnerable in our society. And all the figures show that, that those on the lowest incomes have seen the most support from this government at what has been a very difficult time. And we're not done supporting people. My firm belief is the best way to help those families is to make sure that they can have well-paid work. And we've got a suite of things that we're doing. The national living wage is going up. We're also helping them with new uh, skills training to find better jobs. The kickstarts scheme where the government is fully funding high quality jobs for young people at risk of unemployment. Uh, those are the types of things we're doing and they will all make a major difference. Extending that temporary uplift in universal credit though is clearly going to help the most. Why won't you do that? No, I, I, I don't think that will help the most. That temporary uplift was indeed temporary. It was the right intervention for the particular part of the crisis that we've experienced. But now, as the economy is reopening and businesses are hiring again, the right thing to do is to help people find really well-paid jobs, which is why the Kickstart scheme is important. It's why we're giving companies huge cash incentives to create new apprenticeships for people. And it's why the Prime Minister's lifetime skills guarantee is crucial. 10 million adults who don't have a level three qualification will, for the first time, be able to get one from the government. We know that that can have a transformative impact on people ability to get a new job or get a better paid job. Those are the right ways to help people. It's a really disgusting argument there by Rishi Sunak, because again, he's sort of making it this zero sum game between having a decent social security system whereby families don't have to live in poverty and struggle to, to feed their kids or good well-paid jobs. And there is no association between the two of those. It's not the case that bosses think, oh, I won't bother to pay people more um, because they're getting money through universal credit Anyway, that's not how it works. That's not how bosses decide on wages. Bosses decide on wages based on who is willing to work for them at what wage and things like the power of trade unions. So if Rishi Sunak really cared about increasing the wages of Britain's workforce, he wouldn't be cutting social security benefits. He would be empowering trade unions. He would be raising the minimum wage to something which is genuinely enough to live on, not just something he's called the living wage, even though he's plucked it out of thin air and it has nothing to do with what the Living Wage Foundation say is actually a wage that people can live on. It is potentially a smart argument, though. It's Rishi Sunak trying to sound progressive, trying to sound left-wing. I care about high wages and that's why I'm cutting benefits. Ash, do you think the public will buy it? Well, maybe because we've got a really stupid media ecology, as I've already pointed out. So what the public will believe is often a reflection of how hard politicians are being pushed on the hypocrisies and outright lies within the arguments they're making. So maybe, maybe not. One of the things which I think is really important to point out is that over a fifth of universal credit claimants are in work and are judged to be earning so little from the work that they're doing that it's not come uh, subject to work conditions, like you have to prove that you're searching for work X many hours a week. So that means that somebody is essentially in a full-time form of work and not earning enough to survive, to feed themselves, to clothe themselves, to keep a roof over their heads, to look after their kids and their loved ones. And what Rishi Sunak is saying is, well, what we need to do in order to encourage people into full-time work, which as we've seen a fifth of universal credit claimants are already in, 
is hurt their income even more by taking away this £20 uplift. It doesn't make sense. It's a completely dishonest argument, which I don't see either Rishi Sunak or anyone in the government being pushed on hard enough. And I also don't see Labour, I think, doing nearly enough to get these kinds of arguments out there, because what it would require is taking a step back and saying, actually, it's not just the welfare system that's broken, it's employment. It's the way job creation is working. It's what kind of jobs are available for people. You don't see that kind of political sense-making and that kind of narrativizing, which links together these seemingly disparate bits of people's economic and social existence into a unified explanation of what's going on. And I think that that is the single biggest weakness in Labour at the moment. And that's also, conversely, one of the biggest gifts given to the Tories because it creates all of this room politically for Rishi Sunak to come out and spin some absolute fraff about how he cares about high wages and how he cares about quality employment. And that's why he's getting rid of a £20 uplift, which is actually helping support people who are already in work and are on poverty wages. Sorry, I'm angry about this the level of outright deception and dishonesty and the room which is given by some of the best paid and most well-regarded journalists in the country for that deception and dishonesty really winds me up. I mean, you should be angry about this. And I suppose, you know, what's particularly upsetting about this is Rishi Sunak is still the most popular person in the cabinet. And as we talked about in the first part of this show, the Tories are about to break their manifesto pledge not to increase income tax, national insurance or VAT because they're going to increase national insurance, which as James Meadway explained, is the most regressive way to pay for social care. And now they're ending the £20 uplift, or I mean, essentially, let's call it what it is. It's a £20, £20 a week cut to universal credit, which is going to put some of the poorest families in this country into further poverty and he's still incredibly popular. And as you say, that is because this isn't covered in, in the right way. How often do we hear people who are claiming universal credit on, on the television? I think if we, you know, if we gave them um, the same kind of access we give to people like Lawrence Fox, then it would be pretty hard to make these kind of cuts, which are going to hit so many working families and so many people out of work. I don't want to do this sort of moralizing good benefit claimants versus bad benefit claimants. It's often very difficult to get a job and as, as we're seeing with things like, um, you know, shortages on, on, on shelves, employers are going to have to pay people more if they, if they want people to go into work. That's brilliant, but that is not happening in every sector, right? Which is why we should not start by cutting Social Security and hoping that wages will rise. No, if Rishi Sunak wants less people to be in poverty on, on the kind of wages where they need to claim universal credit, then make sure everyone is earning enough that they're not even eligible for universal credit. If no one was eligible for it because wages were so high, that would be great. That's not the case. That's not, that's not what we're currently seeing in this country. So instead, what he's doing is cutting it while wages still remain incredibly low. Let's go to our final story. Labour are continuing their campaign to regain power with only one policy, being nasty to Jeremy Corbyn in public. Shadow Foreign Secretary Lisa Nandy continued that trend in an interview with the Murdoch-owned Times Radio this weekend. Can you envisage a situation where maybe he then would stand as an independent in Islington North? And do you think he'd, he'd lose? He'd lose to the Labour Party? Oh, you know, Paul, I've got no idea, absolutely no idea what he intends to do. I know, but what, what think, if he did? Well, the party look, would look, win, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, look, we, we, we stand in seats, we, we, we stand to win and we fight them very hard and we would, you know, we would do that and I would 
you know, I would go and I would go and knock on those doors for our candidate and and do what I could to support them. But I would just say this to you as well: is that Luciana Berger, who I know you know well, and is was a very good friend of mine through our years in Parliament, said when the EHRC report was published, this is no longer about Jeremy Corbyn. He's tried to make it all about himself. And this is about the Jewish community, the hurt that has been caused to them and the trust that needs to be repaired. And that's what I care about. That's what I'm focused on. And it was heartening to spend time at an event in Manchester with hundreds of members of the Jewish community just this week and to hear how slowly and painstakingly we are starting to rebuild that level of trust. And that's what I'm focused on, not the individuals who've caused so much pain over recent years. Ash, I want your take on this. Can you imagine Lisa Nandy canvassing the residents of Islington North to boot out Jeremy Corbyn? Can I just say something about Lisa Nandy's comments about the hurt caused to the Jewish community and how seriously she's taking it? If she was taking anti-Semitism and racism seriously, she would not be on Tom Newton Dunn's show. She wouldn't be on there for even a second. And the reason why is that man, when he was political editor for The Sun, he published an article uh, which was this mad conspiracy theory map which had all these different little fact files and you could click on them and it supposedly exposed a hard left network surrounding Jeremy Corbyn. I was named in it. Many people you know, you might have been named in it yourself. I can't remember, Michael. And when you clicked on those fact files, you can see who was cited to put this map together. And one of the sources was Aryan Unity, Literally, a neo-Nazi organization. There's another one called the Millennium Report, which is notoriously anti-Semitic. And it also seems that this map, this mad conspiracy network map, was actually lifted from, you know, far-right bits of the internet, from something which was called the traitor's map. So this is something which I think had the real risk of perhaps inciting violence, inspiring what's called stochastic violence, where you create an environment which makes political violence more likely, and also was steeped in and drenched in far-right conspiracy theory and anti-Semitism. So if Lisa Nandy cared at all about these issues, which she's supposedly taking so seriously, she would go, I refuse to be on a show being interviewed by this man on issues to do with anti-Semitism and racism, because you know what, the hypocrisy would be staggering. So I I have a real problem with the way in which uh, Labour MPs, supposed progressives, supposed anti-racists, normalise this man who has never been held accountable for what was published under his name. So that's the first thing that I would like to say. The second thing is about this question of, you know, Jeremy Corbyn and the way in which Keir Starmer's leadership and also members of the shadow cabinet have sought that to define their own political identity against Jeremy Corbyn. So one, it's stupid. Absolutely nobody in the electorate is won over by simply a make is is won over by making a negative case by going, here's what I'm not. We've seen that time and time again, which is voters outside of very specific circumstances like perhaps with Trump, they actually don't like that. They're like, can you just tell me what you're going to do rather than what you're not going to do? The second thing is that for all of the attacks leveled at Jeremy Corbyn and for all the ways in which his personal approval ratings suffered because of those attacks, in 2017, 40% of the electorate and in 2019, 32% of the electorate still went out and voted for him. So when you go out and you say, 
Uh, Jeremy Corbyn has caused so much pain. He's essentially second only, uh, you know, to to botulism uh, in terms of, you know, poison and evil. The thing that you're doing is you're essentially saying to that 40% and then that 32%, and so are you. You are associated with this person. If you liked this man's policies, if you liked what he stood for, if you respected his integrity and his principle, that means you're also trash, right? So you're kind of insulting a large portion of your potential voters. And then the third thing is, you know, whether or not Labour could win in Islington North if Jeremy Corbyn contested the seat. Obviously, people tend to vote more so based on uh, party and who it is that they want to be prime minister. Polling has uh, borne that out. However, you do have these isolated cases where the appeal of a particular politician, who they are, what they stand for, and their name recognition is able to upset that general political trend. Now, that's exactly what happened with Ken Livingston, who had to run as an independent uh, for the London mayoralty and won and beat uh, you know, the Blair-selected candidate, Frank Dobson, I believe it was. Uh, Ken Livingston was you know, the victim of, of a procedural stitch-up in order to try and keep him away from the London mayoralty, and he won because he was offering something which Londoners liked, and his name had a significant amount more recognition than Frank Dobson's. Um, when it comes to Islington North, what plays in Jeremy's favour, should he uh, decide to run as an independent candidate, I also wouldn't blame the guy if he just you know, fucking wanted a break from the daily smears and lies and you know hysteria of presenting him as, you know, the greatest evil this country has ever seen since Coronation Chicken. Um, I couldn't blame him if he wanted a break. But the things that run in his favor is that one, regardless of whether or not you agree with him politically or you like what he stands for, he is a famously dedicated constituency MP. There are so many people in Islington North who have stories about, you know, when their council flat was in a state and Jeremy Corbyn said, I'm going to make sure this gets sorted for you. Stuff to do with immigration status, stuff to do with attempted deportations. Uh, Jeremy has been, you know, really dedicated and committed to his constituents. And then the second thing is name recognition. Islington North is a safe Labour seat, sure, but also when he was excluded uh, from the Labour Party, there were these vox pops being done and somebody said, this is Jeremy Corbyn country. And it's because what he was offering in terms of his economic vision, his social vision, the fact that he wanted to achieve a more just economic settlement without throwing minorities under the bus, it made him really popular in Islington North. So I would be wary of hubris in this case. And I also think that to run against Jeremy Corbyn in Islington North in you know an aggressive and hostile way and all that entails, I think that it would hold back the Starmer leadership and Labour's chances more generally. It will just look really unattractive. The most sensible thing that the Starmer leadership can do is go, okay, this man is an MP. He was elected as a Labour MP and he is a Labour Party member. That means he's a fucking Labour MP and just get over it. Just take the L and move on. But instead, they're in this impossible position of at once having no leg to stand on about why this man shouldn't be a Labour MP. It's nowhere in the rule book. There's absolutely nothing, uh, you know, that that says that this man shouldn't be a Labour MP. But so, you know, holding to essentially defying their own 
guidelines and their own laws and internal structures, but also saying we define ourselves against this man, we draw all of our political identity from not being him. These are these are it's a contradictory position to be in. Um and it's a stupid one. It's a it's a rod they've made for their own back. Um so yeah, Lisa, what are you doing on Tom Newton Dunn's show? Like, do you actually care about racism and anti-Semitism at all? Or is it just a cheap political line? Well, she cares about it when people in the Murdoch press have decided that someone is a racist. They've decided Jeremy Corbyn is a racist. She'll lean, she'll lean into that. If the, the racist is actually within the Murdoch press, she, you know, she wants to keep her hands clean. She doesn't want to upset those people. Lisa Nandy, of course, doesn't just speak for herself. She sits on Keir Starmer's front bench and so is subject to collective responsibility. Labour supporters have responded to her comments on Times Radio by therefore resharing some of the statements Starmer made during his leadership election about the then outgoing party leader. Well, look, the attacks on Jeremy Corbyn in that election we've just had were terrible. And they came back at us on the door. They vilified him and they knew what they were doing and they knew why they were doing it. That was Keir Starmer when he was courting the votes of Labour members. He said the media vilified Corbyn and that they knew what they were doing and they knew why they were doing it. Yet when Corbyn said the same thing after the release of the EHRC report, he was suspended. And now Keir Starmer has his shadow cabinet ministers saying they'll campaign on the doorstep of Islington North to boot the guy out of Parliament. There is more, though. This was part of Keir Starmer's acceptance speech. I want to pay tribute to Jeremy Corbyn, who led our party through some really difficult times, who energised our movement, and who's a friend as well as a colleague. That video there, where Keir Starmer calls Corbyn a friend, shows that he isn't just a liar, he's a snake. Ash, it's plain to see how duplicitous Keir Starmer has shown himself to be. Will he get away with it? No, I don't think he will. And I think that the reason why this will go badly for him actually has very little to do with Jeremy Corbyn and how people feel about him as a former party leader. It's got much more to do with what it says about Keir Starmer. Because as you said, saying one minute he's a friend and a colleague, you know, I pay tribute to him. He's led our party through really difficult times. He's been attacked. He's been introduced. He's been smeared. And then to turn around and go, no, wait, actually, all of those attacks and smears were completely correct. I never even liked that bitch. You know, everyone can see that for what it is, which is naked opportunism. One of the things that the electorate really responds to is a politician who is who they are. Do you know what I mean? They just are who they are. That's it. Boris Johnson, you know who he is. He's someone who will say anything to get elected. He's made that clear. He's kind of funny sometimes, and he'll get Brexit done, and he did. All right? He's both slippery and lacks integrity, but he's never promised to be anything else. You know what you get. With Jeremy Corbyn, you know, his strength was his weakness and vice versa, which is there was no changing who he was. He couldn't really be, you know, super agile and responsive to the moment, but that's also what made him an appealing conviction politician. Whereas Keir Starmer's ended up with no policy, no vision. He says he's a man of conviction and integrity, but he'll also turn on someone who he said was his friend, you know, merely a year ago. What do you end up with? It's it's absolutely nothing. And I think that, you know, you can see the desperation in the Starmer project at the moment, which is despite 
the government having handled this pandemic in a completely catastrophic way, in a way which has cost hundreds of thousands of lives in this country, um, despite there being rampant runaway inequalities, despite people being enmeshed in a housing crisis, despite there being climate change happening now, extreme weather events and, you know, completely inadequate responses from this government, Kistama has failed to make a dent in this government's polling. And he only has one idea that's punched left and it's not working. And the more it doesn't work, the more he punch le punches left because you've got Mandelson and that whole gang of, you know, ancient Blairites around him dripping poison into the ear saying, well, if you just do this a little bit more, it will definitely work. No, it won't work. What it will do is get the Labour Party in a shape which is more conducive to someone from the right of the party winning the leadership. They'll do this by disempowering the membership, by presiding over uh, prescriptions and expulsions. And that's what they hope uh, will happen, is that they'll end up with, you know, Blair 2.0 to rule over the ashes of the Labour Party and not win any elections, right? That's all they want. Um, and Keir Starmer is either, I think, to blinkered or perhaps too unstrategic as a politician to see that for what it is. What do people know about Keir Starmer other than that he doesn't like Jeremy Corbyn? I mean, and even that, his, his, his one selling point to the public, I don't like Jeremy Corbyn, falls apart because just two years ago he was saying he was a brilliant colleague and a friend. And he can say, oh, things have changed since now and then. Things have changed because he made a statement after the EHRC report which changed everything. I mean, that just doesn't Wash. You know, e even the people who think that Jeremy Corbyn mishandled the anti-Semitism crisis, none of them think that his comments after the HRC report were worse than what came before. Yet for Keir Starmer, that was the dividing line. The dividing line was before he said, oh, actually, the media did exaggerate the extent of the problem. That was when he suddenly became persona non grata. He suddenly became someone we should be actively campaigning against on the doorstep. Before that, he was a friend who he wanted to be prime minister. It doesn't make any sense. Because also what Jeremy Corbyn said after that EHRC report wasn't anything new. It was what Jeremy Corbyn had been saying the entire time that Keir Starmer was in his shadow cabinet campaigning for him to become prime minister, which was to say, yes, there is a problem, but also it was exaggerated. That wasn't new. No one heard that statement from Jeremy Corbyn. He's like, oh, I didn't, didn't realize he believed that. No, we knew he believed that, right? He said it consistently throughout the whole period. Now, some people might say, oh, that was a bit unstrategic. Maybe you should have used a different tone. Fine, whatever. The point is, nothing changed between 2019 when Keir Starmer was trying to make Jeremy Corbyn prime minister and 2021 when Keir Starmer is saying he's trash on the bottom of my shoe and I wish he would have nothing to do with me. I want to deselect him as an MP. I want to stand someone else against him. It doesn't stack up. You can't have your only selling point as I'm a man with integrity and I hate Jeremy Corbyn when just two years ago you said I'm a man of integrity and I think Jeremy Corbyn's the bee's knees. It doesn't stack up. It doesn't make sense. Ash, thank you so much for joining me this evening. Thank you for having me. Maybe next time it will be in the same postcode, Michael. What are you afraid of? Huh? Small steps, small steps. <laughs> um, we will get there. And thanks to all of you for joining us this evening and for your super chats. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7 p.m. So make sure to hit subscribe if you haven't already. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.